started. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce Julia Bell, who is going to be speaking at us today. She has a PharmD from the University of Tennessee College, College of Pharmacy, and she's currently the interim director at Missions Personalized Medicine Program. So she's taking over for uh, Lynn Dressler, who many of you know, who retired. And um, she's also an assistant professor of clinical education at UNC. She's got lots of jobs. <laughs> um, and in her role, she is working on um, sort of using pharmacogenetics and routine health care in order to improve efficacy and safety of drug therapy. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, from what I've been hearing, you guys had as much snow as we did in the western part of the state, so I'm really excited that I actually got to make it here today. Um, yeah, so I'm going to be talking about how we've gone about implementing personalized medicine, and really it's a focus on pharmacogenomics. Personalized medicine is a little bit of a nebulous term, but um, we wanted to have this broader umbrella term so that if any other technologies um, came about, we could um, be versatile in using that to personalize care for patients. But right now we're really focusing on um, pharmacogenomics. So those of you that don't know much about Mission Health, um, at the moment, and I'll tell you why it's at the moment, um, we're a nonprofit, nonprofit rural health system in Western North Carolina. Um, we are in the process of um, going through an acquisition with HCA, and we will be changing to a for-profit healthcare system. So that's going to be a change that um, is going to be coming soon, and lots of changes, but lots of opportunity as well, becoming a part of a much bigger system. And so um, our main hospital in Asheville has 763 beds. We also have six affiliate hospitals across Western North Carolina. Um, lots of uh, physicians and advanced practitioners employed through us. Um, we have 50 medical specialties and subspecialties. And in Western North Carolina, we serve about a million residents across 18 counties. And one thing I want to point out here when we're talking about those 18 counties, they're all federally um, medically underserved uh, population. So um, we have a really uh, interesting mix there. I think the quote is in general 75%, our payer mix is 75% Medicare, Medicaid, self-pay. So um, having to um, adapt and take care of patients um, that are medically underserved is, is um, part of the challenges I'll be talking about here. Um, okay, moving on. So um, on the left here, this is our team. It's kind of small. But I think we're mighty, small and mighty team. Um, so uh, I answer up to the, uh, one of the vice presidents of the hospital. As um, Lori mentioned, our former director was Lynn Dressler. She came from UNC to Mission Health to help start our program five years ago. Um, I am the interim director and the clinical person in our program. I joined about three years ago. We have a program coordinator and a research nurse. The research nurse mainly helps us with um, our small research that we're doing, mainly pilot studies, and I'll talk about one of those that we've completed. Um, and then we have trainees from all over, not only UNC, but also other schools of um, pharmacy. Um, we also have residents. I'm happy to um, report that I have my first uh, two residents that are going to be with me this, co this coming January through May, and they're going to be um, learning about pharmacogenomics, be in the clinic, and hopefully be seeing patients by the end of their, their experience with me. Um, 
so the majority of our program services, really in the beginning, it was more education, training, and resource. So when our clinicians in the area heard about pharmacogenomics, they had a place to call. Now, I'm housed in our Fullerton Genetic Center, so Fullerton got a lot of calls in general. And um, the genetic counselors and the medical geneticists, they, they could answer general genetics questions, but upon um, me joining the team, we really could robustly um, offer pharmacogenomics clinical services. Um, I'm not going to talk about our role in the Cancer Center at Mission, the Mission Cancer Program today, but we also help um, do QI studies and make sure that if, according to national guidelines, if we should be um, testing for tumor markers on all patients with a certain type of cancer, that we're trying to make sure that we're doing that. Um, I, when I talk about our implementation, uh, I'll talk about our strategy, strategy but Really, we started with a safety effort, so we implemented pharmacogenetic testing for drugs that had box warnings that you need to do that type of testing. That was, that was an easy way to kind of get through the system where we had to go through PNT to get all this approved because no one's really going to argue with a box warning or any safety. So that's where we've started, and, and now we're venturing um, away from those in, in a broader implementation effort. Um, and when I say implementation, really is really what that means is getting these results into our electronic health records so that people can find them and act on them. And even more than that, partnering what we call clinical decision support or alerts that when people go to prescribe these medicines, they don't have to remember all this information. We're going to tell them, hey, you need to do this or hey, you need to remember this result. Um, we offer clinical consultation in the form of um, our personalized medicine clinic. I'm going to talk about that in a little more detail. And we also do consults for cancer genomic profiling. It's becoming more and more standard, especially in late stage cancers, that we're doing these 350 gene panels, anywhere from 100 to 350 gene um, you know, tumor genomic profiling panels. And how do you sift through all of that? If you have a marker or you get a, a mutation in a tumor and there is a drug that's approved in breast cancer, but maybe you want to use it in pancreas pancreatic cancer, how do you go about trying to get that approved and paid for? Because we know those medicines are really um, expensive. And then we have done um, some clinical research. It's mainly going to be in the form of pilot studies. Um, we've we're now on our fourth one of these, and, I, and I'll talk about that a little bit more in detail. So if we look over the last five years, um, Lynn, of course, uh, started the program back in 2013, 2014 when she joined Mission Health. Um, she did a lot of assessment of drug use and planning. So if you're going to go out and say, okay, we want to put alerts into the medical record for a certain drug, well, you really want to know who's using that drug and where. Um, you want to go to your stakeholders and get buy-in about what we should be doing in our health system. So she spent a good you know, two years just trying to get the lay of the land and figure out where to go. Um, when we talk about box warnings, there are a handful of drugs that have box warnings, and there were a couple that she said, this is going to be a slam dunk for us. We're going to go after, um, let's say, for instance, uh, this, this specific gene drug pair called CYP2C19. That's the enzyme that breaks down or actually activates a medication called clopidogrel or Plavix. It's used after people get stents after heart attacks. She thought that was going to be a slam dunk. That didn't end up being um, the first place to start at our health system. So she spent a lot of time just meeting with uh, stakeholders, trying to figure out what was going to be um, the best. Um, we started first, the first alerts we put into the medical record were with coding. 
Codeine has a box warning um, for pediatrics. Um, and really, the, the warning was specifically for children that had had a certain surgery. And what we know is that with, when codeine is activated to morphine in the body by an enzyme called CYP2-6, if you have more of this enzyme around, you can actually get more morphine per a standard dose of codeine. This is problematic in kids, and actually there were some deaths in children that had had certain surgeries. And so we embarked on a, um, uh, an implementation effort to put these alerts into, into the electronic health record. Now, some places actually genotype for CYP2D6, and that way you know what that, patient, uh, that patient's capability is. That really wasn't going to be feasible, and if we think about how codeine was being used, a lot of urgent care use, um, a lot of um, emergency department use, if you didn't have that result readily available, you weren't going to order it then because then it wasn't going to be ready. So we just decided to take it off our formulary, our pediatric formulary, and put some alerts up around it. Um, the rest of the time, um, I can just summarize it in. We've done a number of pilot studies. I'm going to talk in detail about our clinic that we started. And then we've just a done a number of implementations of single gene drug pairs really focused around safety. Um, so you can see there at the bottom in 2017, this was one of our first ones, HLA-B um, and carbamazepine. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Um, and really, that was the hardest one to get done. It was one of our first ones. We kind of cut our teeth on coding, but we hadn't added in having to order a lab and have the lab results come back. So what you'll find is once you kind of do it the first time, you get a system down, and then you kind of just do iterations of that again. So that one took the longest, and then we've been able to do more and more as, we, as we've gone. Any questions? Yes. I don't know if you want to get into it, like, sort of the details of how yes. you do that in yeah. yeah, yeah. I have a lot of screenshots, okay. um, so <laughs> we'll get through that. Um, okay, so we'll start with our clinic. So um, uh, as I mentioned, housed in the Fullerton Genetic Center, we have a regional genetic center, um, and they would get a lot of calls about, hey, um, my, uh, my daughter's friend, um, they had this pharmacogenetic testing, and it was really helpful for their antidepressants. They would get a lot of calls, and they didn't really have a mechanism or specialized visits for, the, for pharmacogenomics, because um, they mainly just see the traditional um, you know, uh, hereditary risk for cancer and, and other things that um, a genetic center sees. So we created specialized visits um, so that clinicians in the area when they were asked about these types of tests, all our primary care physicians didn't have to be expert in this, although we eventually would love if they would be, but um, they could refer them to us. So we, had, we created clinic appointments to discuss testing and review results. Um, we utilized the existing infrastructure, so we, had, we have a genetic counselor, medical genetis, geneticist model, and so this fit nicely in that. I just kind of put myself in the genetic counselor role. Um, and so pharmacists, medical geneticists, and genetic counselors as needed. What we found was when patients come in, they have lots of genetic questions. So even though we're only there for the pharmacogenetics, we want to have other people available to answer questions. Um, we st we've started with the patient must be referred by a clinician. This is because these, uh, these um, results can affect future prescribing. And we wanted at least someone to acknowledge that they were going to take these results, receive them, and look at them. Um, as we're going into the realm of direct-to-consumer testing, especially pharmacogenetic testing that's about to explode, I think we're going to revisit this and, and see if we wouldn't just have patients coming in um, and requesting appointments. Um, 
the things that we want patients to take away, just a better understanding of how genetics impact medication response. Um, you know, when people come to our genetic center, they get a better understanding of genetics anyway, but we want them to really know what it can do for medications. And we also give them a summary report to take, and they can take that to, um, to other clinicians in the area. Okay, so in general, we have a two-visit model. The most important thing is gonna be this very first bullet point on the left, is to ensure realistic expectations of the pharmacogenomic testing. I spent about an hour talking about um, the things the testing cannot do. <laughs> so it can't do you know, A, B, C, and this. Because most patients come in and, and what they say time and time again is, I want, I want to know the best medicine for me. Well, we're going to get closer to that, and we're going to eliminate some of the trial and error, but we can't just kind of shake a magic um, A-ball and say, okay, this is the best one. So um, I meet with a family. This used to be me and a genetic counselor. What we found was when the genetic counselor was in the room and started asking family history questions, it then blossomed into not only a personalized medicine visit, but also a genetic counseling visit. So we had to really, for time's sake, kind of narrow that down. So now it's just me. I meet with the patient and the family and take a medication history, discuss the risks, limitations, and opportunities, and costs. So as of right now, it's somewhat variable if insurances will cover this testing. Um, I, I will say a lot of companies, and I'm not advertising any one company, but they can tell you max out-of-pocket costs. So you want to make sure that we're giving, we want to make sure we're giving our patients some really good value-based information so that they can decide if they want to pay out-of-pocket for it or not. And then we will um, collect the, the swab and send it out on that visit. When the patients come back for the second visit, if they get testing, and, and I'll also say um, some patients come in with testing, so they go ahead and skip to visit two. They've already had it done at some outside place. So we want to ensure, again, we go through the education process again, make sure that they know how it can impact their, um, their current and future medications. I create a summary to accompany the lab report. And um, we go through both of those. And then um, and I go a step further if I need to. So say it was a primary care provider that, let's say, for instance, was really trying to decide between a couple different antidepressants. I'll probably touch base with them again and say, hey, these are what the results said. This is you know, things that you need to consider when you're thinking about what, where to go next. Okay, some of the challenges we experienced early. Um, scheduling within an existing clinic, you have to create all of the visits, the documentation, everything. Also, um, I mentioned that we have a genetic counselor, medical geneticist model. Right now, um, I'm not a billable provider, and so just like our genetic counselors in the state of North Carolina, they're not billable providers either. And so we pretty much all have to see these patients and then grab the medical geneticist to have the face-to-face -face time in the clinic. So trying to build all this schedule based on our two medical geneticists and then being able to come in and see the patients. Um, creating new documentation in the EHR. I don't know who in this room has um, gone through that, but it, it takes a lot of effort. Um, <clears throat> process re receiving and, and denying referrals. We very rarely deny um, referrals, but sometimes people have really unrealistic expectations. And so a phone call on the front end is actually really helpful to make sure that their visit coming in is going to be um, useful. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a patient who was referred and came in and had um, uh, 23andMe testing, which is direct to consumer, um, and they brought just the raw results in. And so um, I wasn't going to translate those. Um, and furthermore, when I explained that you know I would I would recommend uh, clinical testing, 
um, that, that she was not very happy about that. So <laughs> she's like, you have to pay, I have to pay more money after I've paid this amount of money. And so um, that might have been a little bit better to be a conversation on the front end than having her come into the clinic. Um, again, patients with unrealistic expectations. Really sustaining momentum. Everyone was really excited about it, and I went out and talked to primary care visits and primary care providers in the beginning, but then just trying to keep um, the momentum going for the clinic. And then I talked a little bit about the reimbursement issue that we require the medical geneticists for that. Yeah. Did you face um, any pushback from providers or anybody within the system? Right. I didn't. I didn't get pushback. Um, I think when I went to talk to a lot of them, they thought that it was really interesting and really promising, but then, um, you know, still just trying to create kind of case scenarios who, of who I thought would be good referrals, that was really helpful for them to want to know. I'll tell you the other thing that I've experienced. The, the referrals I've gotten that were driven by providers, a lot of times the patients didn't show up. When the patients went in and asked for that referral, they showed up to clinic. So it's got to be a good balance between, you know, providers buying into it, but then also the patients feeling like it's also going to be helpful. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of sustaining momentum, mm -hmm. did you did you see, like, an increase in, in referrals and then all of a sudden they're yep. plateauing off or dropping right. now? Is that, is that the Right. Because if you think about it, if you refer one patient, um, they it may or may not be a slam dunk, and it just happens to be that they had a variation in, a very, in an enzyme that had a significant impact, right? So it would take a few of these to really get an idea of if it's going to be helpful, and that's what we try to do with our pilot studies. Um, so if someone just referred one patient and they didn't really see anything, you know, maybe they didn't refer. And we've got a pretty good list of, I mean, it's really, we've had a lot of people refer. We haven't had a ton of significant referrals, except for, I think, um, the exception to that would be the people that are really close to us. So we have um, a couple different clinics, the Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder Clinic. A lot of those um, children are on a lot of behavioral health medicines. Developmental Peds is a pretty close partner of us. And then also, um, we also have an Ehlers-Danlos uh, clinic, and those patients have a lot of chronic pain and other issues. So I've gotten the most from those because we've had this close relationship. But just primary care, it's you know one or two per provider. The number of providers increasing though? Yes. That are participating? Yes. And, and again, I think it's driven by patients. So oh, right. I, I, what it is is someone saw something on the news or read something in the newspaper. Yeah. I know that I got two referrals apparently when Dr. Oz had something <laughs> about pharmacogenomics. I got two in that day and two in that week. So I really feel it's right now it's being pushed, at our institution it's being pushed by, by patients asking for that. Any other? Okay. Okay, so hence why we tried to do this primary care pilot study to try to get this information consistently in the hands of our primary care providers. Um, basically, uh, and there's, there's been, this has been published before, that a lot of providers and primary care providers don't really have the comfort level or the knowledge to, to um, interpret or apply pharmacogenetic results. If we order this earlier in primary care, we have, and we're more preemptive, we have this when we're doing future medication prescribing, so it's, it can be good early on. I don't know what the magic number is. Is it 30 years old? Is it 25 years old? Is it 50 years old? Who knows when we should really be implementing this. Um, we targeted uh, an older population that was on polypharmacy, 
and one of those drugs had, or one of those medications had to be one that had a pharmacogenomic association. And we really just wanted to address logistics and have them become more familiar with this type of testing. We paid for the testing, so that wasn't a barrier, and we provided education for them. And so we had two sets of um, research participants, primary care physicians and patients. Um, the PCPs participated in two CME, two hour-long CME sessions, did pre- and post-testing surveys, um, and that was provided by me. Um, I talked about the eligible patients, and they agreed to surveys pre and post, and also had the cheek swab for testing. And this was covered by a grant that we had from NC Biotech and, and also some philanthropic money. So um, for the primary care physicians, they had a um, 41-question pre-test survey and then um, some similar questions on post-test, but then other uh, additional questions. And then we also did, um, and we did interviews with them. For the patients, uh, before they were consented, they did their pre-test uh, survey. And then after, about three months after their pharm pharmacogenic testing results were complete, we did the survey. We wanted to give the clinicians a, uh, an amount of time that they could talk to them at a follow-up visit. Um, and then there's the... Um, the specifics on the analysis. So we had commercially, we, we don't do this testing um, right now in-house, so we had to use a commercially available um, uh, test. And we had two reference laboratories. That was because one of the reference laboratories we started with, actually, um, they stopped doing testing in the middle of the uh, in the study, so we had to switch to another lab. But in general, I included not a complete list, but ones that were uh, essential to both of those. So mainly our cytochrome P450 metabolizing enzymes, um, and a couple of other pharmacodynamic uh, genes. When OPRM1, that's a mute opioid receptor that's involved in pain, um, and then uh, some some other ones there. Um, I also provided a summary uh, for the results to accompany the lab report for this. So we had 51 patients and four physicians from three different practices in the area um, enrolled in the study, and then 49 patients completed um, the pre- and post-testing. Uh, prior to the study, none of the clinicians had ordered a pharmacogenic test, so this was relatively new to them. And overall, 97% of all patients had some sort of variation. The more genes you test, the more likely it's going to be someone has some sort of variation. Um, and 29%, almost 30% of patients had variations that could affect their current medications. If we look at the patient demographics, um, pretty even between uh, male and female. Most would fall into the range of 70 to 79 years old. Um, Caucasian population, uh, and there's a pretty well-educated group, some college and um, degree for 23 of, um, 23 of the 51. Um, at the bottom, uh, we asked them about their health status. You know, the majority said they're in excellent, very good or good health, with the other group saying fair to poor. Um, so here are just some of the responses for the pre-testing survey. About 67% had said they'd never heard of the term personalized medicine. Again, it's a little bit of a nebulous term, so um, maybe if we'd asked pharmacogenomics, I don't know if that would have increased that at all. Um, the majority of people wanted to um, participate in the study because they thought that it would help or interested in learning more. Um, of course, like many people, 67% had stopped taking a medication due to side effects. I think most people have. And at the bottom, they really rely on medications to help with their health. Okay, so 
Um, if we just look at this top part, the part that was statistically significant, different from the pre to the post, um, really there was an increase in understanding or an increase in thought that um, genetics can affect our um, medication responses. Um, and then if we go to the bottom, this is where I think it's really interesting. So I want to focus on the, um, the fourth one down. PM, uh, personalized medicine testing could help me and my family understand our likelihood of developing cancer. So when they heard personalized medicine, this is what they thought they were going to get this type of information. We explicitly said in the consent and over and over that it wasn't going to give them this type of information. And yet, at the end, they still seem to think that. So to me, it just seems people when think about genetics, they have all these, you know, it's probably um, just thinking about their family members and what, you know, you're really thinking about hereditary cancer risk is a big thing that they're thinking about. So still trying to dispel that to our patients that they're not, we're not getting this type of information right now. And also pretty interesting that even though they didn't really know a lot about pharmacogenomic testing, they thought it was similar to just other tests that their um, providers order. So they think this is on the same line, um, but again, the, the cancer thing, we've got to do a better job of educating them. Um, remember, we only had a few, we only had four primary care um, physicians, but what is interesting is 100% disagreed that they were comfortable with their knowledge ahead of, uh, before and 100% <laughs> agreed or strongly agreed that they felt better after. Um, the most important thing on this slide is the top four barriers. So as you can see, there are two that continue throughout, out-of-pocket expense for their patients and lack of reimbursement for, their, for the testing. These are big concerns from primary care providers. What did change was lack of expertise, lack of comfort. Actually, those concerns changed to how am I going to integrate this into electronic health record. So I'm going to show you from now on, that's a big focus of what our program's doing. And how can I utilize these results over time? This is tied into electronic health record integration. If you don't have those available and you tested someone two years ago and you can't find the results and you have a 15-minute um, appointment with your um, uh, patient, it's not going to be helpful. I'm not going to go through all of these, but we, you know, we did interviews with the clinicians, and it was very interesting to see kind of what their thoughts were. You know, so um, more comfort in interpreting and applying for the future. Um, they've heard a lot about uh, infectious disease or cancer, so it was interesting for them to know that germline pharmacogenetics can affect other medications. Um, they didn't agree that they agreed that the testing did not significantly significantly impact their workflow. I'll say we did all the work for them. So in transitioning to actually having them order and get the test results back, that will be different. Um, but they did feel like having interpretive summaries and recommendations outside of just a lab report was very helpful. Um, Again, uh, why did you want to participate? Provided competitive edge. Um, you know, they get, they're starting to get more questions from, from patients. So, um, you know, having to Google things, and now they have more, um, more expertise. So, um, yeah. Okay, so as far as, um, and, I, and I put up here consideration. So remember, these people are on these medications, so I needed someone to actually take the results and apply it clinically to the patient. So maybe they're on an antidepressant, and they had a variation in an enzyme that could affect that antidepressant, but maybe they're doing really well, so we're not going to change that medication. Um, but these were the types of things that we looked at um, that we made recommendations for. Uh, I mentioned uh, Plavix and these um, specific antidepressants. 
quite a few with opioid pain medications. Um, we're starting to see a decrease in prescribing of opioid pain medications, but we're also knowing that if you're going to prescribe one, you want to make sure it's the most, opti the most optimal one. Um, a lot with um, proton pump inhibitors, we use this for acid reflux and GERD. There are a lot of patients on those. Um, and then some were due to not only a genetic variation, but a genetic variation and a drug-drug interaction. So not only did you have kind of a double hit, not only did you have a variation or maybe decrease amount of an enzyme, but then with an inhibitor on board, it made that even more. So we had a couple um, of those that we made recommendations for. So all in all, about 30% uh, uh, patients had a recommendation. Okay, so in conclusion, of, for this study, um, you can do this in a busy primary care practice. We did a lot of the heavy lifting for them. I definitely feel like we'd have to have it really um, easy to order, easy for the results to come back for this to actually go, um, go live. That's what we're working on now. Um, again, the pre-study barriers were really around knowledge, after some education, and, and seeing these results, they felt more comfortable after. They're just concerned about how they're going to have the results in the electronic health record and, and know about them moving forward. Um, and also having someone provide consultation summaries was really helpful um, for adoption and implementation of the, of the testing. Okay, questions about that before I move on? Okay, so I, this should actually, that box should be up beyond the primary care pilot study, but so we did that. We've done another pilot study in supportive care with our oncologist. So we know that a lot of our medications, antidepressants, um, anti-nausea medication, pain medication, go through these pathways. And so we completed, again, another 50 patient study. Um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna present those results here, um, but very similar. After the education, they felt like they knew um, more, but electronic health record is always going to be something that they need to have it in there in order to make it operational. Um, and then right now, we're in the middle of two other pilot studies. So um, PACE is Program of All-Inclusive Care of the Elderly. It's a program to try to keep uh, older patients outside of uh, nursing homes. So um, older patients, polypharmacy, again, just trying to see um, if this information could be useful. The really neat part of the PACE and, the, and the, the, also the palliative care, which is a separate clinic in, our, in um, our cancer center, is that we have a clinical pharmacist who I actually complete the summary, and I'm pushing that to a clinical pharmacist who's embedded in those practices. And so they're going to be the ones um, using the information in clinics. So that's a, that's a little bit different than these other two. We were relying on the clinicians to utilize and the physicians, and now we're having clinical pharmacists play that role. Okay, um, so I'm going to start on some of the alerts that we've implemented into the medical record. Um, so there's a medication, carbamazepine. It's used for a variety of different reasons. It's, it's an anti-seizure medication, but it's used for lots of different um, other things like mood stabilizer and um, different types of neuralgia. So used across neurology and, um, and psych services. There is a box warning for a very specific um, uh, skin reaction, and this isn't like you had a rash to penicillin. This is your skin can slough off. So very, very serious. Um, and what we know is if you have this genetic variation, you're at higher risk for that very serious skin reaction. 
this genetic variation is in a higher percentage in, um, in certain Asian populations, less so in Caucasian populations. But anyway, the, the alert says that if you are going to prescribe carbamazepine to an at-risk population, an Asian population, you need to do this testing ahead of time. There's also um, there's a group called Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium. It's a group of experts in pharmacogenomics that get together and write guidelines. There's a, also a, a guideline for um, for this drug gene pair. So, yeah. So yeah. if there's a box warning, is, are those, do those tend to be covered by insurance? Yes. Okay. Right. In general. So another example, and I, I don't have it on here, I think I have it on the timeline, is um, an HIV medication called Abacavir. Mm -hmm. And we do a similar, it's not, it's not the same reaction, but a similar hypersensitivity reaction. And that's for everyone should be tested. And yeah, that's in general covered. So. More of these safety ones are covered too. There's a couple. There's even a couple without box warning that are safety that are covered. Um, so this was our thought process, and and this was part of the proposal that we took through our. Um, uh, it was medication use committee. I had to go to a bunch of different committees and then all the way up to PNT. Um, so basically, if you have, you're positive for this variation, of course we're not going to prescribe carbamazepine and we have a hard stop alert for that. What hard stop means is you can't actually prescribe it. It's popping up and saying we're not letting you do this and this is why. So the real interesting part is for patients that have never had carbamazepine that are being prescribed this, um, we want them to get the appropriate testing, especially if they're of Asian or Pacific Islander um, ethnicity. And so basically they get an alert explaining the increased risk. It gives them the option of prescribing an alternative medicine or ordering HLA B1502 testing. Also, they can pass through the alert if they've been on it for greater than three months. Your risk of having a reaction is highest in those three months, and so we want to make sure for new starts we're doing the testing. Um, the, the other interesting thing was, what if there wasn't um, anything reported for race? Um, it's not common. We actually have done a pretty good job at Mission trying to make sure that that, fill, that um, section of information is filled in, but some people don't want to report it. So for those people, it will explain the risk of carbamazepine in those populations and um, ask them to order an alternative medication or override if they, if they know that the race is other than, than those two. And then uh, because you don't want to fire alerts at people when there's no risk, if they have results and they're normal, uh, they will get to pass through. So here's an example. And um, I, our health system is in a Cerner, um, uh, on a Cerner platform. So these alerts will, um, of course, look like, I don't know, what, what all do you guys have? Mixture? Epic? Epic, okay. Epic everywhere. Epic everywhere, okay. So this may look very foreign. <laughs> um, so basically, um, just letting them know that if they're going to order it, that there is this um, possibility for this uh, um, this reaction if you have a certain genetic marker. Um, one thing I'll point out here, um, you know, you want these to be as short as this. We want these to be as short as possible. So we have a reference button down here if they want to read more, and we have it linked out to some stuff. And the other thing is they have to select something to move forward. Um, so they can acknowledge the alert, and then if they go forward, they have to select a reason why. They can cancel, or they can go ahead and order the test. So if you're going to put up an alert for people, and you're going to ask them to do additional things, always put it on the screen. Otherwise, it's just extra clicks. So yeah. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Why is DAM capitalized in cancel carbamazepine? 
Um, so that, that's actually a pharmacy thing. It's called tall man lettering. It's a way that we um, highlight certain parts so that it, it may look like another medication. Yeah, so that's a, that's a, yeah. <laughs> that's not a pharmacogenetic thing. That's a, that's a pharmacy thing. <laughs> that's a good question. Though. <laughs> um, okay, and then for someone that has a, a positive result, um, again, as you can see, there are no actions here. We're not giving them the choice. They don't get to order the medication. But we want it for them to know why. Again, we have a reference section down here. Um, also, there are other medications that are similar to this medication, carbamazepine. They don't have the box warning. Um, and it's, you know, they may be at an increased risk if they have this, um, this uh, positive allele. So we try to um, highlight those there, too. Um, yeah, so telling them to use something else, they're not getting to use this. Okay, any questions about carbamazepine? That was a pretty straightforward one. Let me go back and tell you some of the pitfalls. Um, well, I don't think I have a, a, a thing here. We, so the lab that we partnered with um, to get the result, it came in um, and had discrete fields, and so it came in in a way that it just flowed in from the, uh, the lab, so we had an interface. What we didn't count on was sometimes the results are more complicated than just a positive or a negative, and so you get something that says C note. And so um, we discovered that in our testing, that there was this C note option. So then we had to go back and write rules for C note and what we should do in that regard. And so I don't have an example of that here, but basically we're putting it on the clinician to actually have to interpret that result um, and use, with, use that information with caution. We have alternatives to the medication, so really in general we would tell them to use alternatives. Since Cerner has a, a genetic platform that is built into their EMR no. that, that data could go into. Well, so not a genomic platform. It's just it's just a lab interface. And so our, on our end, we had to build those those fields that say, and I think I have some better examples. I'll show you with the next one. But we had to build those actual fields on our end to receive that and say, here are the placeholders. And then the lab would push it through. Um, the way we got this done was this was a lab we already had a relationship with. Building a whole new interface um, takes a lot of time and effort. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of to follow up on that question, um, of course, setting up these BPAs and stuff is right. cost money. <laughs> so uh, was that covered by some of the funding that you had in the research studies, or was that just money that the health system put forward because they found this valuable? Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know about the money part, but it was resources, which is money, basically, yeah. right? <laughs> it's viewed as money. Yeah. So because we started with these safety efforts because the health system viewed that as important enough and safety enough that we needed to put the IT resources toward that. And the way we did that is through the same mechanisms that everyone else gets everything done in the hospital. You go through medication use, because Myers had to do with medication, and then has to go to PNT, which is a big group of people that say, yes, we're going we're gonna to give the allocation of resources to build this or we're not. Yeah, so that's why we started with these. Um, Okay, for, for sake of time, I'm going to kind of skip through this. The, the long and short of it is um, we have this medication, this group of medications, thiopurines. We know that they're broken down by a very specific enzyme, thiopurine methyltransferase, or TPMT. Um, these drugs um, are immunosuppressants, so they um, kind of tamp down your immune system. So as you can imagine, they have a pretty narrow thera therapeutic window. You don't want too much myelosuppression because then people don't have the ability to fight off uh, infections. But then you also want, especially for cancer, which is this is what mercaptopurine, the specific one we're focusing on, it's used for the treatment of pediatric 
um, uh, lymphoblastic leukemia. It's used for about two years um, in their treatment. And so you're kind of playing this like really um, tightrope, you're walking a tightrope tight rope to make sure that we're keeping their cancer at bay, but yet we're not um, making them sicker. Okay, so um, as you can see, this doesn't say genetics, it says toxicology. This is historical because um, this, this test has been ordered for quite a long time um, by our pediatric oncologist. And so our, uh, our ultimate goal is to have a genetics section where all this information is going to go. Um, before we did all of this work, um, we really just had something that said TPMT result and then it had C scan document or C result. Um, so that wasn't something that we could actually utilize for um, clinical decision support. So we created, we did a lot of work with IT and they created this interface. Mm -hmm. And what's really important here is that we have the actual result and then we have this predicted phenotype. So we want to take a genotype, the result, and we want to predict it to a phenotype. And from that, we're going to make therapeutic recommendations. So that was the first step. And then the second step was to build all the alerts. Um, the first one was, say you go to order mercaptopurine and you don't have this result in the medical record. Um, uh, so we go on to say you need this for acute my, um, leukemia and, and um, all of this uh, extra stuff. Now you can see here that if the results are from another source, then you can enter them. So remember I said there was a period of time where we had results that weren't discrete, and then on one day we said they're all discrete. So we, in order to prevent the alert from firing, firing, firing every month when they go to prescribe this, if they had a historical result, we were allowing the clinicians to actually enter the result in. And so that would show up on that flow sheet just like, um, just like we had previously. Again, um, continuing ordering, um, cancel TBMT genotype, or the ability to enter the results. <clears throat> so for someone that has very little activity, they're at severe, severe risk for myelosuppression um, with these drugs. You can see that um, we tell them that we have this big red lettering here, low activity, and to start with 10% of the target dose and administer three times a week. Here, then they can go on with the alert action. So again, the, the neat thing about uh, this project that we did was the ability to enter the results because it would be really annoying just because something was buried to have that fire every time. So that was, that was the lesson we learned with that um, specific gene drug pair. Yeah. Is there evidence behind that recommendation? Yes. Okay. So it's in um, guidelines specifically for um, not only adult uh, use of mercaptoprene, that drug, but um, if we think about how we treat pediatric um, cancer, a lot of it's on protocols and it's part of all the major protocols. Well, I guess what I'm specifically referring to is this 10% dose. dose. Yes. Oh, there's, okay. there's a a lot of data that goes behind that. This is actually coming specifically or straight from a CPIC guideline, that group I was telling you about, Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium. I'll also say that um, I did my, my clinical pharmacogenetics training at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and this was what we did there based on lots of research that they had done. So it seems like a really extreme, and, and furthermore to your point, um, St. Jude has some prospective clinical trials, it's back actually from the 90s, where they did this dose reduction and showed that it didn't affect um, efficacy of the treatment, yeah. Okay, so I'm kind, of, I'm kind of done talking about the clinical implementation. Now I'm really gonna focus on what are the challenges? <laughs> I think this is gonna be the most fun part of the talk. Um, so I'm just kind of putting up some of the ones that I've encountered. 
who and when to test. So should we be testing everyone? <laughs> Some places are going to try to test everyone that walks in their door. Um, should we be doing that? Should we be targeting behavioral health? I think I showed you guys or talked about how I get a lot of referrals for antidepressants and those types of medications. So should we be employing this within our um, psychiatric department? Um, I know that a lot of antidepressants are being prescribed through our primary care, so should we continue down that road? Um, when should we test people? Should it be at age 30? Should it be at age 40? Should it be when you get one medication and that's kind of your entryway? I see that as kind of being what we're doing now. We're doing panel testing mainly on people outside of those single gene drug examples I showed you. So eventually someone's going to come in with an entry point. They're going to get a lot of results and we're going to need to do the work to put in the medical record so we can use that moving forward. Um, clinician awareness and engagement. I spent a year just letting people in the region know that we had a personalized medicine department. Um, so having to go out and actually talk to everyone. I would love to say that there is an electronic way to disseminate that information, um, but that's difficult too. Like how do you get all that, uh, all the information needed out to all the providers? Um, choice of lab to perform testing. There are a lot of labs out there, and so you have to decide which one um, based on a lot of different factors, cost, what genes are on there, what the reports look like, so a lot of different reasons um, to choose between testing. And then also thinking about can we actually bring this in-house? We have a genetics laboratory. You know, what is the what is needed from their standpoint to actually get to a point where we could bring the testing in-house. Cost of testing continues to be, um, I want to say a struggle. A lot of the reference laboratories have patient assistance and um, they're really trying to make it affordable for everyone. I will say though, I do have patients that, you know, $75 even is, is not something that they can, they can afford. Um, electronic, I, I know of heart, if you take anything away from this, electronic health record integration, this is where it's at. This is what we're putting a lot of our effort into right now, but I think this is a critical piece. And then patient education. I am so lucky in my clinic that I get to spend about an hour the first visit talking about pharmacogenetics, and then an hour the second visit talking about the results. And I wonder if you actually went back and quizzed all my patients two weeks later, how much they'd really remember. The reason why I bring that up is I get calls from them um, from time to time about, I took this, uh, my, my gastroenterologist wants to order this test, should I do it? Well, you have that test in your hand, like you had that done. And so I just feel like we need a lot of effort um, for patient education. Um, again, I was talking about who do we test. So, um, you know, we've been mainly in this realm, so this reactive, and this is a spectrum of preemptive, having the results um, at your fingertips, versus reactive, we're doing a lot of stuff after. So, um, you know, our single gene drug pairs are really going to be, we know the patient's going to go on a medication, and so we're going to do the testing. I also see a lot of these patients in clinic all the way over here on this far side. They failed all therapies. They filled all the antidepressants, and they want to know why. Now, I think our, our knee-jerk reaction would be like, it's not very, it doesn't have a lot of uti utility in these patients. But I would argue that a lot of patients actually like having the results back to either know that they're, they weren't working against themselves, so they weren't getting all these medications um, if they had normal results, or maybe there was a significant variation, and you can say, well, you know, in hindsight, we might have skipped these trials. And it makes them feel better that they didn't just go on this journey um, haphazardly. But I think we're starting to move into this realm, right? I talked about a patient with antidepressant, maybe a 35-year-old, who got a multi-gene panel, and we're going to start, we're going to want to use that moving forward for the rest of their life or in their care. 
And then I think with a direct-to-consumer, we're going to start seeing more of healthy patients, really maybe not even on medication, that um, want this information. So we're going to have to start switching from here to start thinking about how we're going to do it there. I'm, I'm going to skip this in the interest of time. Yeah. So with respect to that uh, range of testing, yeah. do you have an estimate for, in a general population, what fraction would actually benefit or potentially have mm -hmm. some finding that would? So those two things I think are different than benefit, but have like have some finding. Like I said, if you used a 20-something gene panel, uh, it's going to be a very high likelihood, greater than 90%, that someone will have a variation. Right. Now, remember, like say someone that's not on any medications, they have to find a medication that actually matches that variation um, for it to become actionable. So that's where it's a little bit hazy as to how much you're going to utilize that information. But actionable or an, uh, a result that could have an action, it's going to be really high. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned high risk um, working with medical. <coughs> Were you able to? So for for Medicaid specifically, mm -hmm. um, is there a system you know send up flags on cap risk, mm -hmm. say pediatric children that may be right. high risk to have this test? Not that I know of. Um, I don't have. I don't know of anything coming from Medicaid. I mean, we could do something in our own medical record that kind of flagged people or do a survey of our own medical record of children at Mission Health that had a specific uh, insurance, but I don't know of anything coming from Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Does I'm anybody else know? It seems like they want to be on board with identifying things to save money. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree. I don't know of anything. Yeah. <clears throat> so just... Um, is a general question. Uh -huh. So I'm a patient, and you know I go to the clinic, and one of the first things that they ask is, "Are you allergic to anything? Known allergies, mm -hmm. drug allergies, particular?" Right. So if I say yes, would that should that flag that I should be tested then? Would that be a, a flag for testing? Or? I think that's a great question. So, but remember, allergies are a little bit different than just adverse effects. Um, so in general, I know it's, I know I really specifically brought up some hypersensitivity like questions. Mm. But if we think about it, adverse effects can happen with all of our medications. Um, now, there are some that we know have, um, that go through enzymes that could, could put you at a higher risk of an adverse effect if you had a variation of that enzyme. But adverse effects can really happen at any time. So I don't know that I would really flag, flag you to get something. Um, I mean, as far as hypersensitivity, though, like say you'd had Stevens-Johnson's or that terrible skin reaction with carbamazepine, at that point, you're never going to get that medication again. So whether we test you or not, okay. um, you know, it's, you've, already, you've already proven you're at risk. So, yeah. I've actually, I've, uh, well, I I'm going to keep going for time's sake, but I have some other stories about that. Um, this is just saying it took a lot. We did grand rounds. We did podcasts. We did mailings. We did everything you could imagine doing. Screensavers. Just trying to get the word out. Um, I think it helped. <laughs> We're still working on that. <laughs> um, and, I, and again, 
we've got to remember, when we go back to electronic health record, genomic results are different from other lab results, right? They're complex in an unfamiliar nomenclature, especially pharmacogenomics. You guys saw up there, it looks like uh, alphabet soup. You know, the star and the star allele and the star one and star three. What does that even mean? And it's not the same for each gene. Who can remember all that? Nobody. So um, we need to have interpretation in there for our clinicians. Um, numbers of genes being tested. I went from a 14-gene panel in a year to a 27-gene panel, right? We're getting more and more of these types of genes that are being tested. The volume of knowledge, all of what we're learning, how can anyone keep up with that? Also, in general, results could be used over a person's lifetime for germline pharmacogenetics. There's a little caveat to that, but in general, if you're an ultra-rapid metabolizer and you had appropriate testing that covered enough of the gene to make that assertion, then um, that's going to be a result. And we, we absolutely have to have a way to try tie these results to prescribing. To your point there, you may have a high-risk result, but if we don't tie it, it's not going to help anybody. Yeah? So, concerning the nomenclature, is there a move to make in the pharmacogenomics community to make it simpler? So it's more understandable rather than going through the star, 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 so which are different for each of the genes because we can have stars, star five on this yeah, set of genes, right. and it's totally different right. from star five meeting. It's not just for all the genetics. It's not just for all the genetics. It would, yeah. I, I don't know of a big movement right now. There's always talk of it. But there, there has been a movement to change the nomenclature of the phenotype. Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah. 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 This PDFs. You can't. It's an easy way to make a nice report, and a lot of the reference labs have made these really nice reports, and it's helpful for a patient. It's helpful to understand. But when they go into our health system, if we can even find them, they're not. They're not going to give us that uh, ability to tie to prescribing. Um, I'm not going to go through this, but in in a lot of detail, but. Main points that we need to remember. We needed them to be consistent and time independent. If these results can affect prescribing now, and you can't find them because they were two years ago in a PDF, then it's not helping anyone. We need the results to be discrete data, so then we can create those types of alerts or BPAs so we can interact with it. We need interpretation. It should at least have the expected phenotype, which, yes, we've worked on standardizing that. And it should have pharmacotherapy recommendations, and we need clinical decision support so we can use this at the point of care. Um, some of the things, uh, some of the other things we're uh, struggling with, um, manual versus automated input of results. I showed you guys, um, you know, an example of how results can just flow into our electronic health record from a lab. Um, that being said, as we're moving to this larger panel-based testing, are we going to create those interfaces for all those labs? Probably not. That is a marriage that it would really take a lot to get out of. You've got to be pretty sure. And also, we talked about going through the proper channels and not having extra money for this, maybe. Um, you have to ask your health system to put the resources into doing that. Um, so right now, we're taking on a manual approach. Um, it needs to be scalable and updatable. This is rapidly evolving information. So we're going to need a multi-pronged multi approach. You're going to need the results somewhere, time independent where you can see them. Um, we have these things called problem entries that could also be an option right now. You need a consultation with recommendations for therapy. These are going to be static, but then you also need some um, uh, clinical decision support. Um, 
I used uh, this is from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital um, on loan from them where I did my residency. But as you can see here, this um, this is last 100 results for 99 years. If you go to this tab, this is all this information is always going to be there. So this is a good example of how to do that. Um, here's an example of at Mission Health. Um, so again, this is in chemistry, which was different from the other one, but um, we can have the variations here and we have the predicted phenotype. This is discrete, so we can do things with it. But what about the interpretation? What if someone didn't know what that meant? If you click on that, that's a lot of information to read. And to be honest with you, read a lot of it. It doesn't give you any therapy recommendations, right? So we need something better than that for our clinicians. Um, here's a note that I wrote. This is, a, this is a test patient, but this is a note that I wrote. It has their drug therapy recommendations. Again, time stamped. So someone's going to have to know to go back to that and read all that information. So what we're working on now is this um, a way to manually put in coded entries. So basically you go up here and, you, and this is taking a lot of work, I'm thankful for my, for my IT partners. You go in and you put a result here, it's going to automatically fill in all this information and the, ther the therapeutic recommendation. So we're going to do that for a lot of different results. It's going to create a note for us, so that'll be nice, that'll be done automatically. And then all of these results are going to go into a new header called pharmacogenetic results and they'll all be there. So we're creating a way to have all this information and then the next step is to start building clinical decision support for all of that. No big deal. We <laughs> um, talked a lot about alerts. Remember, when you're constantly alerting people, they become desensitized to it. So we've got to be really careful about alert fatigue. And we want to have targeted alerts, present clear, short information, and hopefully there are going to be some other technologies coming, some um, less intrusive ways to display the information in, your, in, your, in the way that you're working and it not be an alert that you have to bypass. Okay, so um, right on time. Sorry, I'm a little, running a little bit late, but um, in summary, you can implement pharmacogenomics as possible in a community health system. You need top-down and bottom-up support, so not only from your C-suite uh, uh, group uh, administration saying this is important, but also from all the clinicians that you're going to be working with. Awareness and engagement providers uh, and patients really key. Um, we started with some low-hanging fruit. The, the safety issues and try to get some under our belt. And then once you have that existing infrastructure, you can do it over and over again. Um, and then IET infrastructure is crucial. As we try to move more toward preemptive testing, we're gonna need all this um, into our, in, in our electronic health record. Okay, and this is Asheville. Um, it was white last, last weekend, but this is what it looks like. And thank you guys for your attention. Yeah. So we have a couple questions yeah. that related to this last one specifically. Uh, the first one, kind of like getting the word out or finding these patients. Have you worked with um, like pharmacy? I'm thinking like working with like, the outpatient outpatient pharmacy community health as a yeah. pharmacy, right. where they've seen somebody come in and get pen medications. Right. Would that trigger them to maybe? I think it could. We haven't really gone down the retail route. I will say that I'm very. Um, I, I I have a dotted line to our outpatient ambulatory care. Uh, pharmacists who are embedded in the primary care clinics and so they're actually the ones that I'm really trying to get more involved in identifying patients and not even, not only um, sending, them, sending them to me in clinic but empowering them by having a way to order it having a way to get the results back to actually just take it on themselves and um, that's a little bit of a lofty goal but I think eventually we can get to it and that's why I've been doing with these pilot studies trying to target very specific practices and get them on board yeah. And then the other question is, 
MSBPA's uh, do you have a way to collect data based on what riders select? So like, yes. how can they actually enter the values? Right, that's a great like thing. A so we know from drug-drug interactions, a lot of times you just, bleh, you just put whatever. It's not always fruitful. So there is a way that we capture that. And, and you have to think about that when you're building the alerts. The more um, you build as pre-filled choices as they have to go and choose, and then you do give them an option at the bottom. But if you put really good choices, then a lot of times they will pick them. That information we, we have housed for about three months. So you have to remember if you want to know to go in and check it because it gets recycled. Because they're capturing, they're capturing all of that. So you'd really have to ask them to capture it for a longer period of time if you want. But yeah, you can. All right, thank you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Um, well, I, I say that we didn't want. Yeah. 